Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Mellow greetings, DHP listeners. I formally convey my presence. This is CJ here with episode 165 of the Dangerous History Podcast. In this episode, I have an interview with a very, very interesting individual. A young man with a history podcast that is already doing very well, despite having only been out for a few months. And I'm speaking to Noah Tetzner of the History of Vikings podcast, which you can find at thehistoryofvikings.com and, of course, wherever you consume your podcasts as well. He's a very interesting guy. Some of you who are listeners to School Sucks may have heard his recent interview there, uh, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And first off, he's only 17 years old and already has a successful history podcast going. Secondly, it's a very interesting podcast about the history of Vikings, which is a topic that lots of people find very, very interesting. And in addition to that, Noah is a very interesting guy because he has an atypical education background, primarily homeschooling and unschooling, with only a very brief stint in conventional school. And you'll hear him talking more about that in a moment. Also, by the way, Noah is a comrade of mine on the Recorded History Podcast Network, so that's kind of cool as well. But before I get to our conversation, I do have some awesome individuals to thank for signing up to support the show via Patreon, so big thanks go out to Joseph, Carl, Donald, Alex, Robert, and Tyler. Thank you all very, very much for stepping up to support the show via Patreon, and I hope those of you listening will consider doing so as well. For just five bucks a month minimum, you get a whole bunch of different benefits, including access to exclusive bonus episodes, early access to ad-free versions of regular DHP episodes, and eligibility to join our private Facebook group. So I hope you'll consider supporting the show if you're not doing so already over at patreon.com slash profcj. By the way, my most recent bonus episode release there was You Might Be a Terrorist, kind of an interesting, funny, but also somewhat disturbing take on some government documents from a few years ago. And in the works, I have several other bonus episodes coming along, including some related to the not-so-civil war. Also, before I get to my conversation with Noah, I have someone, though I'm not sure who, to thank for ordering me the book Cowboys into Gentlemen, Rhodes Scholars Oxford and the Creation of an American Elite, a very, very interesting looking book off of my Amazon wish list. So whoever it was who ordered it for me, thank you very much. It was a used copy, and they don't allow you to put in the little gift note saying who it's from when you get a used book through Amazon. So I don't know who got it for me, but whoever it was, thank you very much. All right, with the housekeeping taken care of, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Noah Tedster of the History of Vikings podcast. So, uh, Noah, just for anyone who doesn't already know anything about you yet, you're currently, am I correct, you're 17 years old? Yeah, that's right, 17. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm insanely jealous because (laughs) podcasting, when I was your age, and I know I sound like a crotchety old man, you know, when I was your age, kids (laughs) these days and all that kind of stuff, you know, get off my lawn. Um, Yeah. When I was your age, it was 1998. So podcasting did not exist. And 
most of the internet as we know it didn't exist. It was still like, you know, dial up to get your AOL.com email and you've got mail and all that kind of stuff that to you probably seems like, you know, prehistoric. But man, I mean, I'm, I'll admit I'm jealous because I can only imagine where I'd be now if I had been able to start a podcast. So, you know, congratulations. Good for you for really kind of like taking advantage of the opportunities to do this sort of thing. As far as I know, anyway, you're unusually young for a podcaster, especially for a history podcaster. Can you tell us a bit about your background? Kind of the Cliff Notes version of your story that brought you to starting the History of Vikings podcast. How did you come to be doing a podcast about Viking history before you're old enough to legally buy a pack of smokes? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, CJ. Um, yeah, well, first off, thank you so much for uh, inviting me on the show. It's just uh, an honor to be speaking with you today. I'm a massive fan of uh, Dangerous History, so this is a real treat. But secondly, I would say, you know, how I got into podcasting um, – I listened to podcasts um, for quite a few years, you know, since I was probably 13, 14, somewhere around there. And uh, I had always wanted to start a uh, political podcast, actually. I was uh, really into politics. And actually, before I started the History of Vikings, I actually had the concept for my political show, and I actually had my first guest, and I actually still have the recording on my computer. It's just never been published. Uh, and the whole concept behind that show was it was going to be called Politically Stupid, and the concept of the show <laughs> is um, sort of – for the 60% or whatever the statistic is of Americans who don't even vote, you know, the people who know nothing about politics, the people who think their vote doesn't matter, those who are, uh, if you will, politically stupid. And my first guest was actually uh, David Barton. Uh, he's a evangelical uh, historian. I believe he was on the he was an advisor to Ted Cruz's uh, 2016 presidential campaign. Uh, but yeah, I had the opportunity to speak with him. Interview never got published because I uh, really honed in on my passion for history. I've always been super passionate about history. And I guess uh, my interest in Vikings uh, is really more of a recent thing. Uh, I recently discovered Norse mythology uh, actually because I was playing a video game, a really old video game. I think it's called Age of Mythology. It was made in like 2001. Uh, oh, ancient, and, ancient, yeah. <laughs> I know, right? But uh, there was a lot of, you know, um, Viking, Old Norse characters in that game and a lot of characters from mythology, and that really got me thinking. So I did some research, and I discovered the primary sources we have for for the Norse myths and, you know, just finding out how massively different uh, Thor, Odin, and all the gods are from how, you know, the Marvel movies portray them. But... Yeah, and then after that, I once I discovered Norse mythology, I naturally became super fascinated with the people worshipping those gods, the Vikings. So I just really started reading everything I could find on it, uh, watching as many documentaries and YouTube videos as possible, and uh, thus the history of Vikings was born, and I started my podcast. It's only three months old, but already – listened to by a fair number of people. I've had the opportunity to interact with a lot of um, like fellow Viking enthusiasts, professors from Oxford, Harvard, Yale, all that stuff. And it's just been really exciting. I really enjoy talking about history with people. Yeah, yeah, that's really awesome. I'm going to link in the show notes for this episode to the episode you did with Brett Vinat of School Sucks, so we don't need to, to rehash all that in detail in detail here, but um, from listening to that episode, I know that you have um, an unconventional education-slash-schooling background. Can you just talk a little bit about your, your education? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm currently, um, I'll be going into my senior year, uh, 12th grade, obviously, and um, from first grade to eighth grade, I was homeschooled. Uh, you know, loved it. Uh, my mom homeschooled my sister and I. Uh, my dad was also really engaged with our education. Uh, he runs a small business. He's a real estate appraiser. So I really got to 
learn a lot about the real estate industry from him. So it was just a great, a great thing that we had going. But then I went to private school, um, and I actually left private school this past October, so about six months ago. And I went there for two years, so uh, just to get technical, from ninth grade to eleventh grade. Then I went to private school, and um, when I first went to school, you know, it was kind of a big shock from somebody who had uh, been homeschooled all of their life to then suddenly going to this, as they're called, academically rigorous schools, you know, these very pious institutions. Um, and going there, it was great. You know, the first few months, the first few years, again, my love for history, I was really connected with the history teacher at my school and, um, just had a lot of great intellectual conversations. He was really passionate and really saw a lot in me in terms of my love for history. But then as I got older, I really was starting to realize what I wanted to do with my future. Uh, I really kind of had that entrepreneurial spirit, which I guess uh, really comes through in my podcast. Cause I mean, in that a way, uh, podcast in a way is a, a business venture, if you will, you know, but I did that. Um, I was just really not satisfied with what I was being forced to learn at school. I uh, realized that probably 75% of everything that I was being taught was not things that I actually, you know, things that were actually of benefit to my specific life, what I wanted to do with my future. Um, so after having a conversation with my mom about it, long story short, uh, then we discovered unschooling, what is known as unschooling. So this idea of lifelong learning and uh, living life as if schools didn't exist. And I came home and I started homeschooling again or unschooling. And basically what that means is I just learned the things that uh, were necessary to – that my mom and I felt were necessary to my personal educational experience and my personal life. So I really spent so much time and still do working on podcast stuff. Um, I had an apprenticeship with my uncle who's also in real estate, spent a lot of time with my dad, learned a lot about that industry. And yeah, just really um, being able to learn what was necessary for my individual uh, future. Wow, that's really, really interesting. And I'm sure everybody listening can tell, obviously, um, from having most of your schooling be homeschooling, unschooling, obviously, you are very maladjusted and not well socialized. And are clearly, you know, just don't know how to like talk to people or anything like that. It come, comes through. So I, I probably didn't even need to point it out, but I figured I would. Um, right. But I, I'm guessing this this uh, private school you were going to, it rigorous, but I'm guessing it was very much the conventional uh, academic paradigm. It wasn't like, you know, Montessori or some other kind of, you know, a little bit more student directed or what have you. It was kind of a standard top down model. Yeah, it was uh, a classical school. Okay. It's interesting. You mentioned you had the one history teacher that really kind of, you know, resonated with you and that you got on well with, and that was a good experience. Can you tell us a little, little bit more about, about what that teacher in that class was like? Yeah. So, uh, it was a private school and it was one of those private schools, you know, I guess there's really two different types of private schools for anyone who's listening, who's familiar with them is there's the private schools that, uh, all of the affluent families send their kids to and the schools that take government funds, uh, plus the tuition. So, you know, there's these massive, um, grand campuses, uh, but then there's the private schools that don't take government money, uh, like the one I went to. And of course, uh, you know, there's only eight students per class. Uh, and of course it was a, a nice experience in that sense, really enjoyed the smaller class. But in terms of my history teacher, yeah, I was, I mean, in part, it was probably because I was the most passionate about history in our class of like eight to 10 people. But yeah, it's just, um, he was super passionate about history, um, you know, before and after class, uh, during lunch, I would just have like half an hour, hour long conversations about different topics of history with him. Um, he was, you know, passionate about all the same things I was, all of the, uh, BBC history documentaries that I grew up watching. He played in his class. Uh, he'd played the same 
historical military strategy computer games that I'd grown up playing. Uh, and he just really had this passion and it was super contagious. And, um, one of the things that he did in his class is I just remember he had such a way of, um, bringing history to life for people. Like I remember one class, you know, um, we would have like historical debates. So I think one time we were talking about the Vietnam war and whether the United States should have, um, you know, engaged in all these conflicts all over the world, um, you know, trying to halt the spread of communism. And we arranged the chairs in this massive circle and we divided the class, uh, you know, 50, 50, and we would, uh, debate these historical topics, which, uh, we also debated, uh, protectionism and free trade, that whole sort of thing. And it was just really a great way to make history practical and, and bring it to life. So, um, yeah, he, he actually, um, I'm still in contact with him today and, uh, he's just a really cool guy and really brought history to life for me and really appreciated that I was, passionate about it and really sort of encouraged that passion, which was, uh, really, uh, a great experience. Yeah. Well, it's nice to hear that. I mean, your time in conventional school wasn't 100% a waste. There's at least, you know, some, some benefit right. that you gain from that experience. And it's interesting that that story, I mean, I've experienced it on both sides as a student and then as, as a teacher teaching college history, that, that sort of, you know, relationship you're talking about when on the one hand you have an instructor who's actually really knowledgeable and passionate about what they're teaching, which is unfortunately relatively rare in K through 12, especially. And then a student who's actually interested in it. I can, I can tell you that, you know, from that teacher's perspective, he's like, Oh, great. You know, someone who's actually like listening to what I'm saying and <laughs> is getting some benefit. I mean, it really does. It really does make my day. Um, you know, when I have a student who's like really clearly interested in stuff and is really, you know, learning things and wants to ask good questions and whatever, I mean, it really kind of makes balances out for all the, you know, kind of apathetic people who are just trying to, trying to punch out a credit and get through. Um, yeah. but it, it's interesting how I, I often wonder people who get particularly drawn into a, a specific, you know, topic, whether it's history or something else, you know, some, something in science or technology or, you know, some other thing that might be a subject in school in some form. I always wonder how much of it is because the person that was just almost kind of like destined by personality to be interested in that topic. And how much is the luck of the draw of like the really good teachers, what they happen to be teaching, you know, because I had two really good uh, history teachers when I was in, in grade school. I had Mr. Altschuler in sixth grade, who was fantastic and taught kind of uh, uh, world history. So I can just remember like he was great, you know, going through the Greeks and Romans and all this sort of thing. And then, um, and then I had some cruddy history teachers. And then when I got to high school, I had Mr. Tully and Mr. Tully actually had a master's in history, which is rare in a high school, t he's a history teacher in public school. And he actually taught some college classes on the side as well. And it, again, he's one of these guys who would really make it come to life and really make it interesting. And you could tell he really knew what he was talking about. He wasn't just reciting the talking points from the teacher's edition of the textbook. Right. And, you know, between those, those two, those two teachers who were two of the best teachers I ever had, um, in K through 12, and they happen to be history, it, it kind of just makes me wonder, like, would I have been as interested in history if I hadn't had any good history teachers? And, you know, would I, if I had had a really good physics teacher, would I now be like, you know, deep into physics and, and all that? You know, it's, it's just, it's just one of those things you can't answer it, but I always wonder. But anyway, let's, uh, let's delve more into, into the main uh, topic of your podcast. So what do you think based on all the all the research and learning you've done so far about Vikings, what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions in your mind that the general public may have about Vikings and their history and their culture? Yeah. Um, so there are many misconceptions that people have about Vikings. Uh, uh, this one, I'm sure many people who are even somewhat interested in history probably are, are already familiar with, but of course the Vikings did not wear horned helmets. That was, no. a, oh. I, oh man. Yep. 
But uh, no, that was a misconception. Uh, I believe that was conjured up during the Victorian era uh, when uh, – and the Victorians actually were very fascinated by the Vikings during the late 18 – uh, early 1900s because there was a series of um, operas about Norse mythology and some other stuff. And of course, you know, the characters were depicted as wearing horned helmets, but there's absolutely no archaeological evidence for any uh, horned helmets that we found. And if you think about it, uh, it's really um, not practical at all to have this like protruding object coming off of your helmet, um, creating additional weight that, you know, somebody could knock off thus knocking off your entire helmet and your balance. So that's just one misconception. But it uh, looks that, so badass. I know, right? It <sighs> really does. It's a, it's a shame. Yeah, no, but that's, that's one misconception that people have. Um, I guess another misconception that people have is, you know, we tend to think of the Vikings as these barbaric, bloodthirsty, um, uncivilized, unkept, beastly warriors. And I guess that's sort of half true. And I kind of hit on two different topics there. Uh, the first – or the, I'll go with the second one first, and that is uh, that the Vikings were unkept barbarians. Uh, the Vikings were actually very cleanly people, and we found many uh, combs uh, for combing hair and such in the archaeological excavations that we've done in Viking graves and Viking uh, towns and everything like that. Uh, I was also talking on my show uh, with a Yale professor, Anders Winroth is his name, and he was telling me, if I remember correctly, that uh, the Vikings actually had a certain day of the week for uh, washing. It was called like bathing day or something and uh, in Old Norse, of course. And uh, there's actually – and I would I probably should reach out to him and try to get this exact source. But there's actually an, a medieval source uh, written in English that says when the Vikings were settling in England is, um, you know, these Vikings, they come here and they actually smell good and they're clean and our English women uh, want to run away with Vikings. Nice. Uh, yeah, so that's a uh, that's a second misconception is that they were unkept and uncleanly. I guess the third one is that they were super violent, bloodthirsty barbarians. And while they did go on many raids, oftentimes raiding you know undefended undefended monasteries and coastal you know uh, peasant villages and stuff like that. Uh, if you think about it in retrospect, the entire Middle Ages is an extremely violent era. People, you know, being uh, getting their tongues cut out, all sorts of this nasty stuff uh, during siege warfare, catapulting uh, carcasses of dead animals so that the into towns so that the infectious diseases on those animals would spread and infect the populace, you know, just, um, burning people at the stake, massive amounts of violence. So to say that the Vikings were more violent, um, isn't necessarily true. And another thing is if you, so the term Viking actually probably isn't the most accurate term that we would use, uh, when talking about the people that we consider as Vikings. So the people that we consider today as Vikings, uh, the more proper term would be uh, Norsemen or, or Norse women, you know, the Norse people of the uh, Middle Ages who, of course, lived in Iceland and um, Sweden and Denmark and Norway, Scandinavia, right? But the term Viking actually um, is sort of a job description. I believe the Old Norse root, Old Norse being the native language of the Vikings, I believe the Old Norse root for the word Viking is Vik. And I really should make sure that I know this, but I believe uh, with the root and then the rest of the word, um, I would have to look up the original word, but whatever. Anyways, uh, it basically means like a pirate who lurks in a fjord and, you know, one who is pirating. So were all Norsemen Vikings? Did all Norsemen go pirating? No. Uh, most of them just ran farmsteads and would occasionally go on raids during the raiding season during the spring uh, and summer. But I would say those are definitely the main misconceptions people have about Vikings. They were just really normal people. Uh, in a way, don't get me wrong, they achieved so much in terms of exploring, uh, you know, Iceland, uh, Greenland, you know, first Europeans to discover North America. They have massive trading networks. 
Um, they even besieged the greatest, most heavily defended city in the medieval world, Constantinople. There's so many misconceptions that people have about the Vikings. But yeah, I would say those those are the main ones, though. Were any of the Vikings full-time Vikings? In other words, were any of the Norsemen full-time Vikings as like that was their only job, the sort of raiding and, and all that? Or was it a supplemental job for pretty much everybody and it was just a question of kind of how much of it you did relative to farming or some other more mundane job? Um, I would say the um, without getting super technical into the different societal feudal classes of the Norse people, you know, the um, Jarls and the peasants and the thralls, which were the slaves. Without getting into that, I would say the simplest answer is um, I don't think any of them were necessarily full-time Vikings, really full-time raiders. Again, um, it's impossible to raid during the winter when the sea is literally frozen. So it would have only happened in the spring and summer. And then when the raiding season was over, they would, of course, come back to farms and their families and everything else like that. Uh, eventually, as the Viking Age progressed and it got a little later in time, uh, more and more Vikings would uh, – the term is called overwintering, whereas they would stay over the winter in the places that they raided. And actually – um, there are a lot of towns that are actually established by the Vikings. The capital of Ireland, Dublin, uh, was a city f uh, founded by the Vikings. And York in northern England, uh, although the Vikings didn't found it, the Romans did, they are the ones responsible for building it up and turning it from an old Roman fort into a um, booming medieval trade port. Yeah, yeah, I was actually gonna gonna mention Dublin. Um, I was just there about two months ago, and you know, there's a lot of a lot of stories and and history there related to the Vikings and in some of the other coastal towns in Ireland as well. But in Dublin, there is an excellent, so I hear, Viking-related museum called Dublinia that mm -hmm. is all about the the Viking history of Dublin. And I was on my way to go to it last time I was in Dublin. And then unfortunately I ran out of time. I already, I had something else. I already kind of had an appointment to do with the group I was with. So I was bummed out. I basically, by the time I got to Dublinia, I, I got to the front door of the museum and then looked at my watch and said, ah, gotta, oh. gotta cut and run. So it's definitely on my list for, for next time I go over there. One of the things I've heard you mention and I, I remember this um, in some of the, I guess it would have been, you know, European history courses or Western Civ or something that I took as a student when they talked about the Vikings, which is that when the Vikings were traveling about and trying to make money and whatever, sometimes they were raiding, but sometimes they were trading. So That's right. they kind of did both. So what's what's the relationship there? How would you describe the relationship between trading and raiding? Yeah, so uh, the Vikings, of course, uh, were super effective raiders. They carried out many raids throughout the uh, what is known as the Viking Age, the 300-year period um, that the Vikings are really prominent in history. Um, but it's interesting to note that you know these monasteries that they raided, these um, you know these iconic images that we have in our minds of Vikings slaughtering monks and everything like that. Uh, the Vikings actually knew where to hit. It's not like they just set sail in their dragon boats one day and then, oh, look, a monastery. Let's raid it. No, they had trade routes all over the place. Uh, there's been you know, Byzantium silk found in the Viking town of York. Um, and I believe actually in Sweden, somebody actually found a statue of a Buddha uh, in some sort of like Viking Age burial. So uh, that came from probably like Persia, that area, the Middle East, and actually made its way all the way to back to uh, Scandinavia, which is nuts. Yeah. Um, just goes to show you how much of the world they were able to see and travel. But in terms of the relationship between their trading and their raiding, uh, often the places they raided were places on their trade routes um, and monasteries were cash cows. They were a place to, in to actually sell imported goods 
Um, and if you just think about it, uh, there's so much wealth there. You have all of the money from the local church givers and the pious donors. You have the communion wine, the religious textiles, um, and certainly the monks would have fetched a a great place at a great price at the slave market because actually slavery during the Middle Ages was huge, and the Vikings were certainly uh, big participators in the uh, slave trade at the time. Yeah, yeah, that's something I, I remember from. Uh, the amount of Viking Irish history that I've encountered is that that's that's another place where they would um, go and, and and capture slaves and carry them off with some of the coastal areas of Ireland. I'd imagine that, as in so many other historical topics, a lot of just sort of the general public, the kind of modern people's conceptions about the Vikings and what they were like are largely formed by popular entertainment. And yeah. I'm curious, have you watched the History Channel, the quote-unquote History Channel uh, series, yeah. The Vikings? And if so, what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, it's interesting to note that I actually like don't follow this series. I've watched a few episodes, though. Obviously, there's some inaccuracies. Basically, every historical movie ever made has inaccuracies in it. Um, right. And, you know, there's certainly are not a sh- there's no shortage of inaccuracies in this series but honestly I think it's good because I know a lot of people who follow this series have and a lot of people who watch it know that it's fake in a way and a lot of people who watch it then that leads them to get more and more interested into Vikings so like a lot of people discover Vikings because of the film and then they go and learn Old Norse and they read the primary sources of the Norse myths and, um, you know, all of this interesting stuff. And they listen to my podcast and my conversation with uh, all of my like expert guests and stuff. But no, I think it's a great gateway into the historical community. And I honestly don't think the show's that bad. I mean, it's certainly an entertaining show. It's very well made. Um, despite there being inaccuracies, there are definitely things that are accurate about it, um, such as the I, – I would say that the music used in it is pretty accurate. There's um, Old Norse in it. There's runes, the Viking alphabet, you know, the, the military tactics for the most part, uh, the shield wall, you know, the longboats. There's a lot of accuracies as well to it. So, mm-hmm. so I think it's, a, I think it's a, a positive thing. Yeah, you know, I personally, I've never watched that series before in my life. I mean, I've heard many people say good things about it. It's just one of those things, you know, these days in the age of Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and all these other things, there's just like so many good shows out there. You know, it's hard to, especially when, when you're, you got other things in your life you know, that you got to do. Yeah. It's hard to watch as much of the cool shows as you might like. Um, but one that I have seen and that I'm familiar with is the film uh, The 13th Warrior. And I've also read the original Michael Crichton novel, Eaters of the Dead, on which the film is based. Um, have Have you seen that movie and or have you read that book? No, actually, but I was just talking um, with a, another history podcaster about it, uh, the History of Germany podcast, and uh, I definitely am going to watch that movie because I know that's based on a real character. Is it like Iban Fadlan? Is that the guy's name? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, something like that. And I know that he actually was a, a real person, and I haven't read the book, and I haven't seen the movie. I'm definitely going to watch the the movie first, which is probably a bad idea. Uh, but then I'll I'll probably read the book at some point too, because I have heard good things about it. And I I'm not quite sure of the exact storyline, but I know it has something to do with a like Viking who was present in the Middle East at the time, and uh, you know, in in that whole like trading network and that whole what the Vikings were doing down there. Right, yeah, I I forget all the details because it's been a long time since I've either read the book or seen the movie, but my recollection is that you have um, this Arab guy Ibn whatever uh, whatever his name is, and he somehow or other, and I think he's some sort of like minor official in the whatever it would have been the caliphate or whatever was kind of ruling the Islamic world at the time, and somehow or other he makes contact with a group of Vikings who are you know down towards the Islamic world doing some trading or whatever. And somehow he gets 
more or less shanghaied into going back to Scandinavia with them to to kind of help them with some some task they're they're facing a threat and it's a it's a pretty you know entertaining movie it's pretty well done and i i actually saw the um i actually read the book well before the movie came out i read the book when i was probably like 12 i was a huge michael crichton fan at that time and it seemed like it's kind of a historical novel and like you were saying it's it's at least loosely based on some real historical people and then there's a seems like a fair amount of license though as well uh with some of the details about the the nature of the opponent that they're they're facing and so on but i remember it being a, a really the the book really drew me in that's probably the first time i got really interested in vikings and then when the movie came out you know it was it was pretty good it was pretty faithful to the um to the to the book and certainly was was well made and entertaining so yeah definitely definitely worth checking out for someone like you who's who's big into vikings i'm sure there'll be some details you'll go ah oh, they completely flubbed that but um yeah my my understanding as someone who's you know nowhere near as expert on vikings as you are my understanding is they got a fair amount right in terms of the big picture you know in terms of like the cultural context and these sorts of things so i'm curious in the kind of heyday of of the vikings what were their politics and government systems like were they just sort of tribal or did they have kind of the beginnings of centralized governments or were they somewhere in between that or or what's your overall take so i think it really depends on the time period you know the viking age lasted 300 years just to get i hate getting technical with dates but uh around like 793 uh is the accepted start of the viking age and then ending somewhere around 1066 so right around 300 years Towards the beginning of the Viking Age, uh, you would have seen like chieftains um, and jarls, which is uh, – those would have been like the nobles, so this aristocracy. Um, and then you know there was the uh, carls, I believe is what they were called. That would have been the like everyday man, the landowner, uh, you know, people who owned farmsteads. And then there would have been slaves called thralls. And then – Later in the Viking Age, as Europe got more and more, uh, you know, modern and government became more and more centralized, um, and kings started to emerge, royal families, and they started conquering vast amounts of land and thus forming kingdoms. And from those kingdoms, obviously, much later we get the modern day countries that we have, like modern day Sweden, Norway, etc. Um, so yeah, that, that's what I would say the government forum is. Uh, it's interesting. I don't know a lot about this, but I know in Iceland, you can visit a place called Thingvalir and the Vikings had this place called, uh, the all thingy or even the thing. And that was a, a law court that, um, everybody could go to. It was a democracy, um, all of the landowners, um, and they could vote on issues, so that's one of the Vikings positive attributes is that they established these um, like law courts uh, where they could vote on things and um, everything else like that. So, um, yeah, that, that's what I would say if that makes sense. The government system was like it really depends on the period, you know, but um, definitely some aspects of democracy in there as well, especially in the beginning of the Viking Age. Yeah, it seems like they have at least some degree of a concept of equality before the law. I mean, it's it's not perfectly worked out, and it certainly, I'm sure, would have excluded slaves and certain other categories of people. But it seems like they were kind of similar to the to the Anglo-Saxons of the same era, that they were starting to evolve some vague notion of equality before the law, at least when it came to uh, free adult men. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, actually, it's interesting to note that during the Viking Age, one of the very interesting details is that although they weren't 100% equal to men, women actually did have a significant amount of rights when compared to other women of Europe at the time. Uh, Women had the right to own property, actually, uh, sue for divorce. And they were, you know, there was definitely this aspect of gender roles, whereas women were the managers of the household, 
uh, the things within the threshold of the household, and men were managers of that which happened outside of the household. Um, but both were equally important, and I think women really contributed a lot to the Viking Age. Like, for example, one of the biggest jobs a Viking woman could have was the making of cloth and textiles. And while that sounds like a petty job, you know, just some lady churning away at a spinning wool for hours and hours a day, it was actually a very necessary process. Uh, the sale of a Viking ship actually in many cases would be as if not more expensive than the ship itself and it would actually take like three years to make the sale of a viking ship which makes sense because not only do you have to you know make this gigantic piece of cloth from you know they didn't have the technology we did so uh, they would have to take you know sheepskin wool and then eventually spin that and do that whole process but you would also have to waterproof the sail with animal fat and everything else so very expensive very time consuming but uh nevertheless women had more rights than other people of the same time period that's really interesting and that's something that probably people who've not looked into this would be a little bit surprised by and when you think about it, and this is a nice segue to something else I wanted to ask you about, um, when you think about it, yeah, if you're making the sales, I mean, that's one of the secrets of how effective they were as, as seafarers. So it's almost sort of like if the women were building the engines that go into yeah. a modern a modern boat. It's like, well, that's, that's pretty important. Um, but, but speaking of the famous Viking longboats, that's actually something I have seen um, at the, I think it's just the, the National Museum in Dublin, which I have been to a couple of times. They do have a, a Viking longboat that you can see, or, or at least a, I can't remember, it's a segment of one or, or some sort of a thing that they have in the museum there. What's the secret to the Viking longboat in, in that it can simultaneously travel over open ocean uh, dangerous open waters, and yet the same boat is also capable of going up river and has a, has a very shallow draft. What's the secret? How can you have a boat that performs well in open water that can also have a shallow enough draft to go up these little rivers and things? Yeah, so I am no expert when it comes to like uh, nautical stuff or like seafaring, but for those of you listening who are familiar with boats, uh, so the hull of the ship, right, the body of the ship, the main part, uh, let me see if I can explain this easily. So the hull of the ship is built in such a way where it sort of dips down and the planks that the ship uh, is made up of overlap one another. Uh, now it's if you can just imagine that in your mind, the ship, the hull of the ship is made up of overlapping planks, and for whatever reason, the shape and way, the metrics behind it, and the way in which this is constructed allows the ship to, you know, sail across the Atlantic Ocean at the same time as, you know, just like any other rowboat, um, sail right up to the shoreline or even down shallow rivers. And if, another thing that's great about Viking longships is the speed at which they were able to travel. Um, they have the sail, which of course naturally propels them. But then, of course, you have oars, and you have you know everybody on the ship would have been rowing at the same time, and that's actually a really difficult thing to do, I'm sure, because you have to really get in a rhythm. And if one person is rowing off off tempo, then it kind of messes everyone else up. But if you get that everybody rowing at the same time with the sail, you're cruising, man. So Viking longships are one of the things that were most critical to their success. And if I just might add, and that's one of the things that the Vikings are most notable for is, in my opinion, the reason why the Vikings were so successful is they were mobile. Um, when they raided places, um, they could... They were masters of hit-and-run tactics. They would raid a place, uh, take all the stuff, quickly escape in their longboats. Um, if they were approaching a settlement and it was a bit more well-defended than they had hoped, they could simply turn around in their ships and, and sail away. So really this concept of mobility uh, is one of the Vikings' key attributes. Yeah, I can remember in some of the things I've read going back to you know my days and kind of world and European history classes and whatever, um, somewhere somebody was comparing the Vikings 
with the the so-called horse peoples of the Eurasian steppe. In other words, that the Vikings are for uh, for waterways what the the Huns or the Mongols or those sorts of people were to the open plains, where they just had such a huge mobility advantage over the various peoples they came into contact with that, you know, you could, you hear these stories about like a giant Mongol army suddenly shows up seemingly out of nowhere. And by the time their opponent mobilizes enough force to deal with them, they just disappear um, and carry off what they can. I always thought that was an interesting comparison that you've got sort of like land Vikings, you know, out on the steppe with Mm -hmm. horses. And then you've got the Viking Vikings, um, you know, up in the North sea and whatever uh, with their boats that in ah. in both cases the secret is they just had so much more mobility than the people they were they were coming up against. All right, so what are some of there's there's obviously a lot of things that we just don't know about the Vikings and their history because of I've I've heard you mention you know they didn't leave much in the way of written sources. Much of the written sources we have were actually written by people who didn't like them. Um, yeah. So what are some of the most interesting or intriguing um, unanswered questions about the Vikings that you've come across in your research? Yeah. Um, gosh, there's just so much into I would give anything. That's my biggest dream is to just have a time machine. But uh, anyways, yeah, I, well, there's it's interesting. Yeah, just so many questions. Um, you know, their alphabet, obviously, the runes we have um, – evidence of that on various rune stones, whereas they engraved, uh, their, you know, writing on stones. Uh, they also, we have picture stones. So we do have a lot of evidence, but then we don't also at the same time, I guess the biggest thing now that I'm discovering in my research is there's this massive controversy, uh, as to whether, Viking women went off raiding alongside of men, you know, whether these shield maidens were these badass Viking warrior women, you know, who uh, also would loot stuff and take monks. And they were, you know, just these massive people in uh, the reason for this belief being so popularized is, I mean, obviously not to get super controversial, but there's this massive wave of feminism that latches onto anything like this in sight. Uh, but apart from that, Uh, There actually has been some evidence where we found um, Viking women buried and part of their grave goods were actually weapons. So we're like, okay, wait a minute. There's this Viking woman buried and she has a sword buried next to her. And, you know, instantly we would think, okay, well, that's a Viking warrior, right? It's it's a woman with a sword and shield and stuff buried right next to her. Uh, but actually, if you study the history of these objects, uh, swords were often used as like heirlooms. But um, there there is a lot of evidence, and I've talked to people who are more inclined to believe that there were Norse women raider, raiders than I. But there is actually some good evidence for this. Um, I would have to talk with them about that, but, um, I guess that's, that's probably at the, at the time, the biggest thing that people are getting really passionate about in terms of like what we don't know. Yeah. It seems like one where definitely sort of modern day ideologies and, and disagreements, (laughs) uh, work their way retroactively. Um, people, people want to either confirm or disconfirm that my complete, shot in the dark guess, and I'm nowhere near as well read up on any of the stuff as you are, is if I had to guess what the answer is, my guess would be that probably it was a thing that happened, but it probably wasn't super common. I don't know. I don't know what what you think about that hypothesis, but... No, I think that's that's a very reasonable thing. We have evidence for Norse women warriors in what are known as the sagas, and what the sagas are are these heroic tales of um, Odin coming down to Earth in disguise and Sigurd the dragon slayer and and, uh, this whole sorts of things. But it's like, okay, um, these are fictional sagas. The heroic women in these sagas are clearly – you know, not a reality and they're, they're fictionalized, but no, I think it definitely could have happened. If I went back in time and I saw Norse female warriors, I wouldn't be surprised if there were a few of them. I'd be shocked if there was like entire legions of them, but no, I definitely think it, it could have happened on a, on a small scale. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned uh, towards the start of our conversation that what 
really first got you interested in Vikings was actually the mythology. And then from there, you started learning more on the actual history to go along with that. So I'm curious, like, what is it about the Viking mythology that really kind of hooked you? Uh, well, I've always been fascinated with mythology. You know, a lot of people love Greek mythology and they love hearing the tales of Zeus and, uh, you know, Mount Olympus and Athena and um, Hercules and, and um, the Minotaur and all these stories. But Norse mythology is just so fascinating to me because they're such great stories. Um, you know, the characters are so different from how they're portrayed in pop culture. Um, you know, Odin isn't this gentle gray old man. Um, like he's portrayed in the Thor movies. He's actually this tricky man who tries to, who actually sort of rejoices when men die in battle so that he can bring them, uh, to his hall in Asgard, the home of the gods Valhalla. And he can train them up for the final day, the twilight of the gods Ragnarok, when all of those men who have died in battle will fight alongside Odin against the frost and fire giants. But it's just stuff like that is there's so many great stories and so many characters, you know, it's just like, I just, I'm, I'm constantly reading the myths and I'm like, what, you know, like there's one myth that would be the meat of poetry where there's like these sociopathic dwarves that invite people to their house and then they, um, kill them. They like bring them out to sea and then drown them. And then they drop massive rocks on their heads as they pass through doorways. It's just, it's crazy stuff like that, but it's so fascinating and, you know, I like to imagine a bunch of Vikings sitting under the, you know, northern lights in Norway uh, around a bonfire telling these stories, you know, the skalds or poets reciting these oral stories. It's just really interesting to think about. Yeah. Have you um, come across anyone who has, I don't know, for lack of a better term, kind of analyzed the Norse mythology in the sort of like, Jordan Peterson slash Joseph Campbell slash Carl Jung kind of archetypal mythological analysis. Have you come across anyone who's applied that way of looking at this stuff to the, the Norse myths? Yeah, it's funny you should mention that, actually. Uh, my good friends uh, Luke DeWolf and Dan Larrabee, they host a podcast and YouTube channel called uh, The Northern Myths Podcast. And what they do is they take the Norse myths – you know, uh, the Havamal, the Voluspa, those are, of course, technical names, which mean nothing to listeners. But those are the names of some of the Norse myths. And what they do is they go through the primary sources. They look at the myths and uh, they're big fans of Jordan Peterson and, you know, Freud and Young and all these folks. Um, and they really look at these, their whole concept of the show is they look at the myths of Northern Europe from an archetypal perspective. So they really analyze them. Uh, they just did the Kalevala, which is the national, um, epic of the country of Finland. And it's just so interesting, like to, I know actually Jordan Peterson, I, he, I think they based their series, their show off of Jordan Peterson's, uh, what he did with the Bible stories. So it's just, it's fascinating what they do. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend in that show. Yeah, that does sound very interesting. Uh, probably out of those names I've mentioned, the one I've read the most on myths is probably Joseph Campbell. I got hooked into Hero with a Thousand Faces and all that stuff pretty young. When I, As soon as I realized, as soon as I heard somewhere that that was what inspired Lucas to create Star Wars and that, yeah. you know, here's this guy writing all these. I might have even seen the famous um, Joseph Campbell, Bill Moyer stuff on PBS back in the day, which interestingly, by the way, is on Netflix now. The, wow. yeah, the, the Bill Moyer's interviews of Joseph Campbell towards the end of Campbell's life. Um, it's on Netflix right now. If anyone wants to watch it, I, I really enjoyed it. And it's possible I might have seen that on PBS when I was a kid or something. But anyway, I know that, I know that Campbell brings up the Norse mythology uh, fairly regularly. Of course, he brings up everything. I mean, next thing you know, he's he's talking about Norse mythology, and then he's pointing out something in like Kenyan mythology that has some sort of connection or parallel. But in your view, what are sort of the broad brush ways that the Norse mythology maybe compares, but probably mostly contrasts, I would guess, with the more well-known uh, at least to the modern Western mind, sort of Judeo-Christian mythology that, 
you know, someone like Jordan Peterson would primarily talk about. How would you how would you compare and contrast in those sort of archetypal terms the the Norse myths versus the Judeo Christian myths? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question, and I've actually talked about that on my show before. Not in terms of archetypes, but I will be doing that because I'll actually be having Luke and Dan on my show next week. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, so that'll be a great listen, but um, hope people can enjoy it. But um, yeah, I love doing that. Um, just comparing uh, the Judeo-Christian, you know, stories or, or even myths, some would say, to the to Norse mythology, and. There's a lot of similarities, actually, between Norse mythology and um, Christianity. Just one off the top of my head is um, anybody who's read the Bible extensively knows that the number seven comes up a lot. Gosh, it just, yeah, try, I, I know it comes up so much, but, you know, the world was created in, you know, six days, and on the seventh day, God rested um, the um, period of time, seven years, is used quite extensively in the Bible. Uh, Jesus said that we should forgive um, those who do wrong to us uh, seventy times seven. You know, so uh, seven is very much a Christian number. In Norse mythology, however, uh, the number nine is used rather extensively. Um, there's the nine worlds. Uh, the nine worlds in which all creatures live. Uh, the nine mothers of the god Heimdall. Um, Odin sacrificed himself to himself on the world tree Yggdrasil for nine days and nine nights. Uh, so you certainly have this um, similarity of uh, numbers. Uh, you also have something like I just mentioned is um, there's this one myth where Odin uh, hangs himself from the world tree uh, Yggdrasil, uh, the, the giant tree that encompasses the universe and the nine worlds in which all creatures live. And he makes a sacrifice to himself. So he sacrifices himself to himself. Not sure how that works, but one might say that that's very similar to uh, Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the world. I'm trying to think. There, there's a lot more similarities as well, just in terms of the actual myths. Yeah, gosh, there's just it, so much. And anybody who is familiar with both will really be interested when they dive deep into those. But yeah, like I said, Northern Myths podcast, they do great work over there. And it's it's really interesting like to get thinking about these archetypes and then analyzing these ancient myths. It's just, oh, I, I live for that type of stuff. Yeah, cool. Uh, seems to me, as as someone who's you know not super well versed in this, that I mean, obviously one of the big differences, particularly between the Norse stuff and the Christian stuff, is the glorification of the warrior ethos and of battle and all this sort of thing. Which I guess you could make an argument to some extent. There's some of that in kind of Old Testament. Um, uh, Judaism, but not not to the same extent, I don't think, as as in Viking mythology. But certainly, there's a big difference with Christianity, right? You've got this whole idea uh, of the Prince of Peace, and you know, I just think about Valhalla, right? Um, it's it's very different from how most Christians, for example, would conceive of heaven. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's it's quite the opposite. So, for those of you who don't know, Valhalla is the place. Uh, where those who are slain in battle go. It's the Hall of the Slain. And, of course, it's this massive hall uh, up in Asgard, uh, the realm where all of the gods live. And it's this hall where men fight and train alongside Odin as Odin's select warriors for Ragnarok when they will, um, you know, Odin's building up his army of men to fight the giants when he himself will die. But... Um, and it's interesting because all of the men fight each other in their training every day, uh, and all of those who die in battle are resurrected, and then they drink meat and eat pork and have this giant feast. Sounds like a lot of fun to me. But Yeah, um, you know, it sounds not that different from the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, honestly. <laughs> Other than a bit less fighting, but you know. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. That sounds like, yeah. See, now I want to go next year even more. But, oh, man, um, did I eat some pork, let me tell you. Oh, yeah, that looks so fun. Uh, it's such a shame I couldn't go this year, but next year, it just sounds like such a, really a, a great environment. 
yeah, it's definitely a whole lot of fun. Um, I plan on returning as often as I'm able to. But uh, circling around, um, based on the fact that you're you're a fan of School Sucks, and based on what I've kind of heard you say in that interview with Brett, I'm guessing that you're some sort of libertarianish type of a person in in your your ideology, that sort of thing. Is that correct? Yeah, I would consider myself libertarian. I would, yeah. Okay, yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm not someone who gets obsessed with labels and and that sort of thing, but. With that in mind, do you feel that the history of Vikings holds any kind of special interest or potential lessons for people who who think that way about things? I mean, obviously, a libertarian type of a person would not endorse raiding and pillaging and raping and slaving, uh, those parts of, of Viking behavior. But are there other aspects of the Vikings and their history and their culture and all that, that you think would appeal specifically to someone who may be a libertarian or an individualist anarchist or what have you? That's a really interesting question. In terms of special interest, I would say that I would like for my podcast, The History of Vikings, to be enjoyed by as large a listenership as possible. Uh, No matter what your political background is, I would love it if you would listen to my show. Um, I never really get into any sort of political undertones or like um, ideologies or anything like that. But when talking about the Vikings, I would say that, yeah, there is. Um, Of course, at first thought, you know, raiding and pillaging, that's the direct opposite to uh, right to property. Uh, you know, so it's sort of the opposite of libertarianism. But the Vikings really, if one who studies Vikings, and I actually talked about this with somebody who was a uh, novelist from Norway, um, there's really this sense of individualism when talking about the Vikings, you know, just sort of this whole concept of, you know, being the best version of yourself that you can be. Um, the Vikings were very against the status quo. They weren't too keen on globalism or anything like that. Certainly they were very centered around their Scandinavian, you know, traditions and everything else like that. So I would say that, yeah, there's really this sense of individualism, which is certainly a libertarian principle, you know, libertarian anarchist, whatever, uh, in terms of the Vikings. So I would say, yeah. Obviously, the first place anyone should go if they're interested in learning more about Vikings is your podcast, which, of course, I will link to in the show notes for this episode. But if someone wanted, in addition to that, like an actual book to read, that would just be a great kind of overview introduction to the topic of Vikings. Is there any particular book that you could recommend that like someone comes to you and just says, Oh, I want to start reading more about the Vikings. I'm inspired by your podcast. Like where would you suggest, is there anything you could recommend as a great general purpose starting point for learning more on this topic? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would highly recommend the book. Uh, it's called The Age of the Vikings by Anders Winroth, and it's really just a excellent introduction to the Viking Age. Um, he covers everything from Viking warriors to the humble farmstead, longboats, mythology, their raids, um, and it's just presented in such an you know an awesome way. So that's the book that I would recommend um, for people wanting to learn more. Okay, cool. Sounds great. So one more thing. Can you tell us some of what's in the works for your podcast for the relatively near future sort of coming attractions? You mentioned a collaboration with uh, those those guys on the question of mythology. Uh, what else do you have in the works that you'd be willing to sneak preview um, yeah. for the DHP listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's a lot of exciting things happening uh, for the history of Vikings. Um, Yeah, like you said, I guess the nearest thing is a collaboration with the Northern Myths podcast, um, looking at Norse mythology from an archetypal perspective. Um, I'm also, I've just launched a YouTube channel like 24 hours ago. Uh, It's called The History of Vikings. Should be able to find it on YouTube. Otherwise, the Northern Myths have me as one of their featured channels. So just look up that anyways yeah that's one of the exciting things happening gosh there's just so much a lot of great interviews coming um i myself am being interviewed on a lot of other history podcasts including actually the tom woods show this monday so uh if you'd be interested in hearing about that then i highly recommend you listen to that when it's out but uh 
YouTube channel, great interviews, and and yeah, there's just a lot of exciting things happening. Wow, that's really cool to hear. Yeah, you'll you'll definitely, I think, see a nice bump in your listenership when you go on Tom <laughs> Woods. That's uh, as a as a two times Tom Woods uh, guest myself. I can tell you, you'll get a you'll get a nice bump. Hopefully, you'll get a good bump from the Dangerous History podcast. But it'll yeah. it'll be a uh, an ant pile compared to what you can get from Tom Woods. So that's <laughs> really great to hear. Uh, well, Noah, this has been a, a really great, interesting conversation, um, and I'm sure you know people will be definitely interested to check out your podcast if they have not already come across it. So I just want to thank you for taking some time to talk with me today. Um, I really appreciate it, and um, yeah, everyone go check out History of Vikings podcast. Thank you so much, CJ, for uh, having me on the show. Um, I'm just a massive fan, and it's it's really been an honor to talk to you today. Keep up the great work. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so. And you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best, most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my A-Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.